Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. He lived for 66 years, but much of his adult life was dogged by tragedy. It was always hand-to-mouth, periods of a lot of money and periods with nothing and, and looking for, for the, the, the big one that will, that will make them rich. And it never really came. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Bank robber and drug dealer Kevin Maxi McAlorum had to dodge plenty of enemies during his long criminal career as Belfast's most notorious gangster. But in the end it was illness that got him and he was laid to rest in true gangland style with a send-off in a horse-drawn hearse pulled by plumed Frisian stallions. So what secrets did the notorious Maxi take to his grave? And what did he gain from his long and violent underworld life? Today I'm talking to Sunday World journalist Hugh Jordan about the life and times of Maxi McAlorum and about the pain he received from a series of very personal tragedies. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I wanted to say just first of all, he looks like a Mexican with the moustache. Maybe they're okay, they're old pictures. Maybe everybody looked a little bit Mexican back in the 70s and 80s. But he really does with the the long hair dripping in gold around his neck, around his arms, all over his fingers. And then, you know, the kind of mullety hairdo. He just has that sort of, I don't know, Miami gangster kind of look to him, doesn't he? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I was unaware. I'm always interested in nicknames and Belfast is, is a city like no other for nicknames. There's all sorts of interesting nicknames. And I was interested in where Maxi McAlorum's nickname came from. His, his real name is Kevin McAlorum, but everyone knew him solely by his single name of Maxi. So how did he get that? And it turns out it's exactly as you thought, because he looked like a Mexican. And somewhere along the way in Belfast English, Maxi, Mexi became Maxi. And that's how he became Maxi McAlorum, because he looked like a Mexican. Because that's like, I mean, here, we had a Mexican, a guy called John the Mexican McKeown, but he was actually called the Mexican. So, I mean, yeah. Why didn't they just call him the Mexican? Well, too, too, too long in Belfast. Uh, just, just too much, too many letters. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the, the Maxi went with uh, uh, Macalorum as well, but he was known simply as Maxi. There was only one Maxi and it was him. Mm. Now, a tough guy from the beginning and by the looks of what you've written about him and others, this guy was a pure gangster, a criminal, not a paramilitary. Well, the, 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 the day of his funeral, which was only a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was a sight to behold. Uh, it looked 
on face value, like a gangster's funeral, the, the black plumed horses and the, the men with the, the, the top hats on and the black carriage with a coffin in it. But then came the crowd, and the crowd looked very different from a gangster's funeral. It was mostly women, uh, mostly young women, and uh, none of his gangster friends turned up, absolutely none. So oh. he was a popular guy within his family and friends. Uh, mm. But along the way, he picked up a lot of enemies and fallouts over money and, and drug deals and things like that. So the, 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 the funeral of Maxi Macalorum was very different from what you would expect from a well-known gangster. It, it mm. did not happen, but he was popular with his family and friends. But he lived to a good age for a gangster, so maybe a lot of his friends have already, you know, passed on or themselves. Uh, that's true as well. That's exactly mm. true. A lot of them were dead. And he, he did live a long life. He, he started out in, in, in life. He was born in the uh, late 50s uh, in the New Lodge area of Belfast in Harding Street near the Christian Brothers School but, of course, he was the perfect age as, as, as society fell apart here with the Troubles. He was mm. cute enough not to make a decision to join the, the IRA or anything, which would have been an option for him. He, he kept his options open. And mm. uh, strangely enough, he kind of fell into the role at that time on television. There were English gangster uh, TV series, the the Sweeney, etc., where there was a sock, shot off sock, shotguns were 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 used by gangsters for bank robberies, and of course it took the banks several years to catch up on security here. And uh, he he and his friends, which were cross community, he wasn't the slightest bit interested in the religious divide, but they took full advantage of the uh, opportunity to, to, to engage in armed robbery. And that is, was his main uh, focus mm. and what he was known for. And going back to, I think it was possibly the 70s, he wasn't at banks. He was pretty, you know, lowbrow at that stage, going in, uh, robbing elderly women. In one case, he held a chisel to the face of a pensioner for the sake of £30. So he, he did start kind of very low level. Yes, that, that, that was an interesting case. He, I think he was only 21 when he did that. And it, but it, it showed the kind of cruel side of him as well. It was three uh, unmarried women living, living together, sisters. Mm. And he had robbed the, he had robbed them three times before he, he was caught. And he entered the, their home and had a sharpened chisel uh, put to their face. He robbed them for 30 quid, which sounds nothing today, but it would have been, I suppose, a week's wages, maybe a bit more in, in, the, in the time he did that. But it was a terrifying experience for them. And, of course, he was caught. He was caught and uh, mm. he went to, unusually, the police spoke for him which led to speculation among his friends. Why would the police speak for you? Was, was Maxi cooperative with them in another way? No one ever knew that, but it, it led to a lot of speculation about why the police would speak for you in the witness box. 
there's many believe that most criminals are cooperative in their own little way and a secret way with police and they're all ultimately, you know, saving their skins along the way a bit. But uh, I let you lead me with the, with him. Where does he go after that? Does he create his own gang of bank robbers or is he amongst someone else's gang? No, they were, they, they were, there was a team in Belfast who were all known as robbers and they kept out of the, the sights of the paramilitaries. They largely... Uh, operated on their own and avoided contact with the paramilitaries. And this is where Maxi fitted in. And they liked to be out and about. He was distinctive in his appearance, as you've already alluded to, Nicola. Mm. Um, he, he loved the gold, the drippings, but his trademark was the leather waistcoat and, and the long hair he, he had at that time. Uh, so he he was quite a striking looking, a bit kind of hippie looking, but uh, he was far from that in reality. Uh, whilst I say he was very popular among his friends, his friends were all criminals. So it was uh, it was a criminal culture that he was moving in, and it was only a matter of time before he upped his game, and mm. the game was drugs. His first venture into drugs was uh, cannabis. And he he developed a name for selling top quality cannabis. So anything that Maxi was supplying to to dealers further down the chain was good quality. And consequently, he was always in demand. And uh, he had contacts all over the place. Uh, Everyone in criminal uh, circles and throughout Northern Ireland New Maxi. Now, interestingly, and maybe we'll come back to the murder that you wrote about, um, uh, about the working man's club, the, the, the security guy, Leo Scullion, which is a horrendous crime. But he, when you say he, everyone knew him, it seems to me that Maxi McAloran was one of the first sort of the Belfast gangsters to reach out to the continent. He obviously had contacts in Amsterdam, and possibly, you know, down along the, the Costa del Sol, he was actually kind of dealing directly with the dealers of Europe. Yes. Uh, well, as I say, he was first of all a dealer of cannabis. But very quickly uh, in the 90s, uh, came, came, the E-Tab the became the drug of choice, particularly in Belfast and in a, in a line between Belfast to Portrush, uh, all the nightclubs. Where uh, e-tabs were freely available, and Maxi moved into that scene. So uh, the the IRA had uh, fallen out with um, a, a guy called Mickey Mooney, and he was the first of several drug dealers shot dead in the city. And uh, so Maxi was careful enough uh, to mm. to keep his head down out the way, but he continued to deal. And the best way of dealing was to have outside sources and in the city of Amsterdam. There were a number of Irishmen had uh, established bases out there and uh, Maxi could could go there to order. And one of the first big stories I did on him was he had travelled there with a brother of Mickey Mooney, a guy called Liam Mooney. And we managed to get a tip off that they were on their way back from a, a ETAB buying trip to Amsterdam. And uh, we, we, we decided to see if we could snap them. 
coming in the depart the arrivals gate at Dublin Airport, which we successfully did. Uh, we as they stepped through, they stepped into our limelight, and we took pictures of both of them, and they appeared on the front page. Hugh, tell that story properly because that is so, such a cool story, and it's a different time, a different age nowadays. You can't, first of all, photograph. I mean, a, a newspaper cannot go into Dublin Airport's arrivals and just start snapping. You're not allowed photograph within the airport, and also the traffic in Dublin Airport is just so enormous now, and with the two terminals that. But back then, you got a tip off. There was only a few flights coming in. You're pretty much guaranteed to get your man, weren't you? We were, we were. And uh, it, time was of the essence. And you're right, it was, it was a, a, a good quality uh, tip off, good source. that he would, So we knew he'd be in. So I spoke to Connor, the Sunday World photographer, and Jim McDowell, the Northern editor, heard us chatting, and he volunteered to do the driving. And uh, so we had 100 miles, more or less, to get to Dublin Airport. And we flew down the road as best we could without breaking the speed limit and got into <laughs> position with minutes to go. Now, at that time in, in Dublin Airport, the it, things were much smaller than Nicola, but, but busy enough. And uh, so the, the passengers came through the gate and were faced with a sort of V-shaped choice of which direction to go in uh, and they both ended up in the same concourse it was a metal metal fencing and uh, so we knew if we were in position we, we would get them no matter which way they went so uh, the, the the flight from Amsterdam came in and everyone's waiting it's quite busy really and a man next to us uh, noticed uh, that that we were in position and brought out uh, a professional-looking camera. And it was a man older than me, and he said to me, are you looking for someone interesting? And I said, yes, we're about to take a picture of two baddies. And he said, oh, do you want me to move? And I said, no, no, you're okay. And Connor said, you could assist us if you want to move in a little bit closer. The man was delighted to assist in uh, highlighting baddies. And he moved in. I was reading a copy of the Irish Times. And uh, Did you have little holes cut for your eyes? Yeah, no, I occasionally <laughs> dropped it just to keep an eye on the, 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 the gate. And uh, we had given Jim McDowell a job of uh, standing to the left with a very small camera. And Jim, as you know, was a big man. And uh, I glanced around. <laughs> he, the camera looked so small up at his head. <laughs> but he was determined to take a picture. And uh, the, 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 then the gate opened, the passengers filtered through. And sure enough, Maxi Macalorum walked straight into our lens scope. And he was snapped without his knowledge. And as he passed us very closely, um, he he said to his accomplice, Mr. Liam Mooney, that man there took your picture, not us. He was referring to Jim McDowell. So <laughs> we glanced over and Jim was uh, looking very casual, as though he was looking for someone. So we had the pictures in the bag and they spun round and spoke to Jim and challenged him about did he take his picture and there was words exchanged. But I called Jim away and, and we, we, we left 
with the pictures in the bag. So that's how we got them. And you're totally right. It couldn't happen today, but it happened no. in, in those days. And, and uh, McDowell clearly should have been left behind from there on in. He didn't show much prowess for uh, undercover work. No, it um, wasn't. It, you know, like he, he certainly is not built for He wasn't certainly <laughs> built for undercover work. But, uh, and he was, he was... He was maybe surplus to requirements, but he was keen to assist. So he, he <laughs> brilliant. It's like a scene out of a movie. Um, but back to to Macalorum. He was that the first time he had been named, and were you were you actually able to bring the story to the conclusion that this was one of Belfast's biggest gangsters? That was the first time he was named, and that's twenty five years ago. So. Mm. Uh, he, these boys were making a lot of money. E-tabs were selling in their thousands every weekend, and it was a question of supply and demand. There was the demand. He needed the supply. Amsterdam was the city to give him the supply, and they, so they, I mean, they didn't bring the drugs back with them. They placed the mm. order, and they were smuggled in lorries or whatever route was available to them, and they came into Belfast. So they had this glory period of, uh, of making money, but always keeping the weather eye out for the paramilitaries because the, the, the provisional IRA had come out against drugs and had uh, a campaign of, of killing known drug dealers in Catholic areas. So he, he always had to watch out for that. And interestingly, he moved house, not to another Catholic area, which he came from. He moved into a loyalist area and, and lived there right until he died. Right. And so, of course, people outside the North don't realise that the double jeopardy of being a drug dealer, particularly during those years in the 90s when the IRA, as you say, they were assassinating known drug dealers. So somebody working in that business or choosing to work uh, in the underworld had to watch their back, not only for their enemies, the RUC at the time, now the PSNI, but also the IRA, who could probably be the most dangerous to wipe them out if they uh, if they chose to. The IRA definitely took a stance against drugs, but I'm interested in your perception of why that was. Was it genuinely for the communities or was it to take up a sort of a role of policing their own communities, certainly in Dublin during the um, the times of the parents against drugs and all the marches and all the rest of it, the you know, the provisional IRA were seen as infiltrating that so as they could become the kind of the quasi-police force within an area. Well, it was exactly the same in the north. Uh, there mm. was uh, great concern within the, the Catholic community of the, the rise in drug-taking, particularly uh, narcotics, uh, and the, the people were worried sick about what was happening to the, their children and they turned to the IRA in, in a vacuum in policing, turned to the IRA for help. Uh, but the, the first murder, first major murder by the IRA was Liam Mooney's brother, Mickey. And that was a, a simple thing where a senior figure of the IRA had a son who was involved with them. And uh, he lost his car. Mickey Mooney seized his car for a drug debt. And the father had bought him the car. The father wronged Mickey Mooney 
and said, I want that car back. And he said he'd get the car back when he pays his bill. And uh, so the IRA set out to murder him. So it was a payback for a senior IRA man. But then it continued on because they felt they had this uh, go-ahead for, uh, for, for for killing drug dealers because people didn't care so much. Uh, there was a breakdown in, in law and order where people saw the drug dealers as exploiters and would have turned a blind eye to murder. So that is that is what happened. And there were up to a dozen of them were killed over a period of about 18 months. And while I suppose the 90s was all about that ecstasy time, you were also late to the table with the heroin epidemic, which had obviously took hold here in the late 70s and early 80s. It was near the 90s by the time we spoke about that before. It sort of took on in the North. But with the IRA, do you think that the ultimate motivation was because there was a challenge to their power from these drug dealers or did they really care enough about the communities to try and stamp out drugs? Because they believed, of course, they could stamp out drugs. If you look back on footage um, from RTE and that from the concerned parents from the 1980s, it's quite extraordinary to see people from the likes of Hardwick Street Flats talk about that they were going to march on these homes and they were actually going to stop drugs. You know, the innocence of such a statement now when you realise nobody can stop drugs, nobody can, no war can stop drugs seeping into communities and, and you know, taking hold of, of people who have addictive tendencies. But they believed they could actually just put a wall up and stop drugs taking hold. But was it the care they had or the compassion they had for the communities or was it the challenge to their own power? I think it was all of those things, Nicola, all of those things. But what I found interesting as the years have gone on and we're, we're really 25, 30 years now down the line. You're right, the heroin hadn't started here whilst it was, it was there in Dublin. We see the, 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 the scourge of it today. But what I find interesting is that some of those who were involved in carrying out the IRA murder of drug dealers uh, produced sons who became drug dealers themselves. So that showed that the, the, the lure of being a drug dealer and the money that, that came with it was far more a, 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 like a magnet to yeah. certain young people than any ideology of, of the mystical republic that they were supposedly fighting for. I think the old school provosts probably really saw the bad that drugs could bring and had a genuine belief that they could, you know, try at least to, to stop them. But, you know, as time went on, all these breakaway paramilitary groups, they are essentially just drug gangs, you know, under the, the cover of certain titles, a lot of them. Um, you know, so things have changed so much in every way. But back to Maxi, was he an intelligent gangster or was he wily? He moved to a loyalist area, presumably to keep himself out of the eye of the the provisional IRA who were perfectly capable of taking him out if they believed he had got too big in his boots as a drug dealer. He, you know, he wasn't uh, clever in, in, how, in how you would describe him he, because he, he always got caught and he, he always went to jail. I mean, even as a, uh, well into his middle age, he does an armed robbery, gets caught and got nine years. And his his son was actually shot dead whilst he was in jail. So he he wasn't a clever gangster. Uh, stints in jail 
came with the the territory, and uh, and he accepted that. You know, he accepted mm. that. Now there were certain things that he did get away with. In particular, I mentioned there the murder that you were writing about of the security man Leo Scullion. Yeah, well, the, the, I was very interested in the in the Leo Scullion murder because it was one of these murders that went under the radar and was largely forgotten about. But Leo Scullion's death was never recorded on a the official list of Troubles killings because the RUC investigators knew that it wasn't what it seemed. First of all, now what happened is Ligonil is a former linen village uh, to the north of Belfast. It's now been swallowed up in Greater Belfast. It's up on the hill. It has extensive views over the city and in its day would have produced linen. But it, it then... Uh, Today it has lovely housing estates, new build houses, and it's a, a very sought-after place to live. But in the mid-80s, it was a very quiet place. You were on the hill, it would be a place where bodies were dumped. Uh, the famous murder of the three Scottish soldiers happened very near there, and it was a place that was silent at night time. There were no pubs in it, uh, but there was one place, the Ligonil Working Men's Club, and it provided a- availability of having a drink. Uh, consequently, it was very busy, and it was just outside the city, so people would even travel there and, and park cars and, and drive to, to back into Belfast later on. So it did a lot of business, this, this club, and a man worked there, Mr. Leo Scullion. It was right opposite the Catholic Church. And Leo Scullion was 55 years of age and a father of two. He had married a Protestant woman and were, well, they had a nice uh, life up there on, on the hill above Belfast. Maxie and his friends saw an opportunity whilst they were having a drink in the place that it was possible to steal their hard-earned money and disappear into the darkness of the night without a great deal of difficulty. Uh, and as I pointed out, Maxie's friends were cross-community robbers and were up for anything. But like everyone else, some of them had paramilitary links. And Maxie had a friendship and connection with a UDA, UVF man. So they had access to borrow weapons that don't trace direct backly to Catholic gangsters. So the UVF man offers the weapons to carry out this robbery. He may even have taken part in it himself. And the place is robbed and they got away with a substantial sum of money. But very quickly, the robbers became afraid and it was rumoured that Mr. Scullion, Leo Scullion, had identified some of them on their way out and uh, he was had made a statement to the police to that effect. So he was the problem for them. And two weeks later, on the 14th of January 1986, they decide to come back to, to, to sort out 
Leo Scullion. They wait till closing time. He remains in the building, uh, being an overnight watchman, and they manage to get in through a ventilation shaft in the roof of the building, which was being repaired, which would have suggested some kind of inside knowledge. And uh, they, they get into the property, get a hold of Mr. Scullion, uh, tie him to a chair, uh, a, a pillow that was brought in is placed around his head and he was shot twice in the head, killing him. He was left on the property and he was found the next morning uh, around nine o'clock. But by that time, the killers uh, have gone. So the police investigation revealed that there, there hadn't been a robbery the second time. There was stock available. Nothing had been touched. A, t- a till had a few pens changed from the float still in it. It hadn't been touched. But what had been touched was the visitor's book had for the previous weeks, including the week that Maxie and his friends had visited. The, the pages were ripped out. It, it, it's really, when you look back, it's, it's something like uh, a, a child's version of crime. But that, that's what they thought, and that's what they did. So they killed a man and stole the pages to protect themselves. They took the man's life. From whatever they had robbed, I mean, how much could that have been? And, and that man's life, that's all it was worth because they didn't want to go to prison. I was actually curious when I saw those dates. So it was before Christmas, the robbery happened. Obviously, they needed a few bob for their festive season themselves. And then the kind of the rumour started circulating that maybe this night watchman knew who they were. So they went back just into the new year to get rid of them. Like really uh, cruel and uh, a murder, not not something that happened in the course of a robbery, a planned It was, it was a, pre, a pre-planned murder to, yeah. to, to stop the evidence that would have fingered them. Yeah. And we can only imagine Leo Scully, and I'm sure, you know, if he heard them in the shafts or in the building, he probably thought, oh, another robbery, you know, and going through his mind, no doubt, his wife, his children, and how to try and act and react to say to, and then when he saw the pillow coming there could have been no doubt in his mind yes he, was, he knew at that point that his fate was yeah. sealed and it was a savage way to for anyone to lose their life and the fear god only knows the fear that he went through right up until the, the final moments 10 years later um maxi macalorum uh, you know, witnessed some horror in his own life himself. And, uh, you know, perhaps that murder he carried out came back to haunt him after that. His son, uh, Kevin, appears to have been certainly suspected or accused of being one of a hit team that killed the former INLA chief, Gino Gallagher. And as a result, he, his son, Kevin Jr., became a target for the INLA. So what happened in, in 96 in, in McAlorum's home? In the, in the run-up to, to 1996, uh, the, the, there had been a, a, an incident uh, two years before, in 1994, when Kevin McAlorum Jr. Uh, was involved in a, a major uh shooting incident on on the Shankill Road. And he was only a teenager. He was a a 16-year-old teenager. 
but he had been groomed, but uh, by Max's own words, he told his friends this. When he was 13 years of age, Kevin McAlorum Jr. had been trained in the arts of, of paramilitary war by Gino Gallagher. And the two of them were very close, although this lad was only a teenager, but he was up for anything that was going. And he took part in the shooting on the Shankill Road of two senior uh, UVF men. Uh, Trevor King uh, was one of them, and uh, Colin Craig, he, he died in the same incident. Now, these were major figures in the UVF, and they were shot dead by Gino Gallagher, who arrived in a car in the middle of broad daylight, got out and, and killed these two men who were standing chatting. The car that drove him in there and drove him away was driven by Kevin McAlorum Jr. It was a dramatic incident in broad daylight in the centre of the Shankill Road. Um, people are well aware of it even to this day. So McAlorum Jr. became known uh, as, as a figure in the INLA, and uh, in 1996, March 1996, there was an ongoing feud. The, as, as you probably know, Nicola, the INLA in Belfast was uh, the history of it was littered with uh, with internecine feudings, and uh, two months before Barbara was shot dead, Gino Gallagher himself was shot dead. And it was a real nasty uh, build-up to the, the crime. And he, he, was, he was in the employment exchange on the Falls Road and stood in the queue waiting to sign on, as they say, when a man who was wearing a wig stepped up behind him and shot him in the head. This man was Kevin McAlorum Jr. And he had been set up to take out his former friend by another senior INLA man who had told him that Gina, Gino had plans to kill his father. It wasn't true, but Maxie, or Kevin McAlorum Jr. was unaware of this, and he killed his former hero, Gino Gallagher, in, in, in the brew, and escaped. So the, the McAlorum family uh, and another young man was in the house at the time, uh, Kevin McAlorum Jr. wasn't in the house, but Barbara, who was uh, a primary school girl, she was sitting on the floor chatting to her dad, Maxie, and playing with a jigsaw that he had bought her. And suddenly there's automatic gunfire riddles the, 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 the front door and, and the, the windows. And uh, they were aiming at this boy who was in the the house and didn't get him. He, he escaped unhurt. But the, the Barbara was shot dead. She fell forward. Her face went into the 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 the, the, the jigsaw. And Maxie described it himself. He said, "We knew she was dead." Her mother. Her mother was a, a deaf mute. Funnily enough, and young Barbara was the sort of voice and 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 ears for her mother. And uh, and she was suddenly gone in front of them. The mother desperately trying to get her up, but Maxie knew she was dead. So it was a shocking, shocking crime that came right into the living room. And there were further consequences from that in the years that followed. 
So he is then suspected of uh, of that by by associates of Gino Gallagher who are going to war because no murders, of course, can go unavenged in, in these times of war, be it to do with politics or to do with drugs. But the day that, that Barbara was, was shot dead, they came looking for Kevin. He wasn't there and she was collateral damage. That, that is how it happened. Now, the child was buried in her communion dress. She was, yeah. I mean, that must have, I know things were bad and the troubles and so many people were murdered, but that must have been a standout moment, was it? It was. I mean, it was, it was stunning in, its, in the horror of it. It was, uh, I mean, the, the actual killing itself and then the aftermath of the funeral, the, the, this little girl who, who was so much needed by her mother, to exist, the mother couldn't speak and couldn't hear, and this girl did everything for her. So it was it was the saddest mm. of sad stories. Was it was the, the death of Barbara McAlorum? And did Maxie McAlorum? Because obviously, you know, you must as a parent be. I mean, beyond devastated by that, I can't even imagine that. But does he look for justice? Is is he somebody who's shouting from the rooftops that he wants the daughter's killers? caught or does he realize that you know this is a really bad situation involving paramilitaries and obviously his son is remains a target because they missed him that day um so how does he react to it well within the past year i had a, a meeting with maxi McAlorum. i actually went to see his sister about something else and he was sleeping in the next room and i asked her to get him up and he came in and spoke to us and uh, so we had a chat with him but it's interesting to talk to Maxie because he just kind of accepted all these things. There was much more tragedy to come even after Barbara in his life. And he just kind of accepted it all as the twos and fro's of, of living a life on the edge. He accepted it all. But what happened was, um, so Gino was shot dead and then it, it appears that Kevin McAlorum Jr. got away with the murder. He was never convicted of it, and the police appeared to have no proper evidence, and these feuds carried on occasionally. But then one day, uh, on June, the 3rd of June 2004, Kevin McAlorum was dropping, Jr. was dropping his children off at school in Lisbon when a gunman got out of the car. And, uh, and shot him dead uh, as the kids were going into school. So it, it came back to bite him eight years later. So many years later. And that's Maxie's second child that has been murdered. That's the second one, yes. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, the, the, that's a, the remarkable thing about him was he, he appeared to accept all these things as going with the territory, you know. But, mm -hmm. he, I mean, he was... A very popular man with his family. I mean, the the the, the children all adored him, and then the, the the of course the as things went on, Maxie was doing a, a nine year jail sentence when when Kevin Junior was killed. They applied to they applied to get out of jail for the funeral, but the the authorities turned him down. So he he had a tragic life. Um, Margaret, who was his, uh, who had been married before, she married him. She died in tragic circumstances as well. She died in a choking incident, lost her life, and uh, 
So, that, so his, his whole life was dogged by tragedy. It delve into crime, but it comes at a price. Yeah, and I think another son passed away as well in tragic circumstances at some point during... He had two other sons who had addiction issues with drugs, mm. and both of them took their own lives in separate incidents. So this... Uh, it's, he lived for 66 years, but much of his adult life was dogged by tragedy. And like his chosen career, you know, and we described him in the beginning as this sort of, you know, suave looking Mexican who, you know, dripping in gold and all the rest of it. He was a drug dealer during boom times in drugs, but dangerous times to be that considering the paramilitary environment that surrounded him. But did he ever make any money? Did he drag himself out of Belfast at any point? Did he bring his family to new social circumstances? Was it worth it even financially? No, I don't, I don't believe so. It was always hand-to-mouth, periods of, of, of a lot of money and periods with nothing and, and looking for, for the, 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 the big one that will, that will make them rich. And it never really came. It was survival rather than uh, luxury. You know, the, mm. the, he had difficulty. Uh, he, he was not a rich man. Uh, the, the living on benefits all his days, the, the car, the, the, a month before he died, his car was used in a, a, a bizarre incident where someone driving it drove into two people standing at a door near Maxie's house, knocked them down. It was videoed and it went around the world for people to see on the internet. It was dogged by tragic and violent mm-hmm. incidents. Uh, and and then Maxie had health issues himself, a COPD. Uh, he, he, when we were speaking to him the last time, he, he had difficulty breathing and had to sleep a lot, you know. So it, mm. it, it was a life that ended up in the saddest of circumstances. And I'm sure if he looked back on it before he passed away, he, he would have to conclude that it wasn't worth it. It was certainly none to Miami. Um, and just finally, I suppose, as, as you know, the, the time was winding up for him, he must have known he was in bad health and he was nearing the end. You said that he always accepted these things that happened, his children being shot, his daughter being shot dead as he played with a, a snow-white jigsaw with her in the living room of his house back in 96, his other son being killed, kids with addiction problems. Did, at the end, did he consider in particular with the with the daughter Barbara, did he change his his feelings about looking for justice for her, or did he continue just to the very end, just to accept that that's just the way life was? No, I think he just continued on. That was uh, Maxie had no great campaign in him for any sort of justice. Uh, he must have known when the two boys took their own lives that he had contributed to in some way, but accepted that that was the price that he paid for the life that he chose. It was a tragic life. It was a, an, an awful life, really, to, to live. And the price, surely, was much higher than any human being should have paid. Hugh Jordan, thank you very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.